Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning, and growing together. A path that recognizes the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, which is produced at the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy and co-hosted by me, Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and Director of the Children's Policy Centre. And beside you, Sharon, Anna Greta Hunter, cardiologist, physician and a Human Futures Fellow with the ANU College of Health and Medicine. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. It's lovely being back with you today, Sharon Bessel. Today we're going to have a conversation that I've been looking forward to for quite a long time. I'm actually in Narago country today, near Threadbow, on my way down to Beechworth in northern Victoria, a wonderful part of Australia that I've been connected to for more than a decade. And in 2013, something very interesting happened in federal politics in that federal seat, the federal seat of Indi. And of course, it had been tightly held by the Liberal Party for many decades. Yet many in the community didn't feel particularly heard or appreciated by their local member. And the Voices for Indi movement formed in response to local politics. Based on the ideas of listening and trust and a process of kitchen table conversations, this group hosted community-based discussions, sharing ideas and concerns for the people of Indi, identifying common concerns and ideas for the area. And of course, at the federal election in 2013, Cathy McGowan was elected as an independent MP. Over the past decade, the people of Indi have continued talking with their local member of parliament. Cathy McGowan was re-elected for a second term, and then the community chose another independent successor to represent them, Dr Helen Haynes, who was also re-elected in the 2022 election. Helen Haynes will be well known to many of our listeners. She's an MP who listens to her community, whose work on integrity has shaped the Australian approach, who has led the regional voice in understanding and working on the challenge of climate change, and whose work as a politician has been filled with compassion and a genuine representation for the people of regional Victoria. Today, we've asked Helen to join our conversation about the process of reconciliation that's now underway and the referendum for The Voice. Her work as an MP with her community, the listening and conversations, offers us a remarkable perspective of community focus and a broader understanding of our country, its history and the opportunities for its future. Welcome, Helen, to Policy Forum Pod. Can we start by asking you to tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and how you came to working in politics? Well, hello. My name is Helen Haynes. I'm the independent federal member for Indi, and Indi is a vast and beautiful electorate in northeast Victoria. It covers 29,000 square kilometres. 
Uh, from King Lake to Corriong. I've been the member for Indi since 2019. I uh, am an independent. I followed uh, the fabulous Cathy McGowan and I have the marvellous honour of being the first ever independent to follow an independent in a seat in federal politics and, and that's a pretty extraordinary thing in and of itself. I guess a brief origin story. I am a very much a a child, a daughter, a woman of rural and regional Australia. I grew up on a dairy farm with four brothers, went to a tiny one-teacher school, uh, completed my education in a small country town, uh, did what many women back in uh, the uh, late 70s did and and, uh, left the farm, went off to become a nurse uh, at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne and continued my education to become a midwife. Then I undertook a master's in public health and uh, followed that on with a PhD in medical science. All of my adult life I've spent in the country. 30 plus years in healthcare, never saw myself as a politician, far from it, but uh, there's no doubt that studying for a master's in public health, really understanding the social determinants of health, politicised me uh, in a way that I hadn't been politicised before. I truly then understood that uh, decisions taken at state and federal level uh, influence people's health. Poverty is the greatest uh, indicator of poor health. Uh, That all became very clear to me. So in many ways, I did become politicised then. But again, no intention of being an MP uh, until we we staged something of a revolution in Indi in 2013 and the only only, uh, seat in the government at the time that uh, fell. The local community said, we want different kind of representation than what we've got. Uh, we want to be involved in our democracy and uh, we elected an independent. And uh, in in being part of that, again, I saw that everyday people, people like me, uh, people like Cathy, people like anybody listening can, in fact, um, participate in their democracy as much or as little as they want. And uh, indeed, if uh, they have the will and the and hopefully some skills, they can too be a member of parliament without having gone through that more traditional party structure. So yeah, this is my fourth year now uh, as a member of parliament. I love it. It's a, a massive job, but one that uh, is great for anyone who has a curious mind and a deep desire to, to uh, participate and serve their community. That's such an amazingly inspirational story, Helen. Every time I hear you talk about where you've come from and how you how, how the sorts of things that have been achieved, it, it really is deeply inspiring. We started today's episode by talking about the process of politics in India and the way in which things have changed in the last decade or so. And, and as you've just explained, you've been an integral part of that process over the last decade. I, I believe there's a book coming soon, The Indi Way, I think released in a ne- the next couple of weeks that is going to give us more information telling the story of that process written by those who've been part of the story. But for today's conversation, Helen, I wonder if you could tell us what's been achieved by independent representation in Indi. What are some of those elements of success for good political representation that that I guess have become clearer over the past decade? Well, what we wanted to see in our rural electorate was a thriving, inclusive community, uh, a community that could find answers within its own ranks, a community that could bring people into a conversation about how we could do better, uh, a community that knows how to work with government uh, and uh, a community that can lead. Uh, 
On top of that, we wanted to achieve something that other places around the nation might look to for inspiration. And in many ways, we wanted to be a beacon for democracy. I think um, Indi could put a tick be beside quite a few of those aspirations. And indeed, what we've seen over the course of 10 years uh, following Indi, the methodologies that we adopted in Indi, kitchen table conversations, uh, huge numbers of everyday people getting out on the streets in fun ways talking to their neighbours and friends and colleagues and people they didn't know about issues that mattered and not so much talking to them but listening with them, uh, engaging in conversations, looking for solutions, uh, not just describing problems, um, was then uh, taken up by by the electorate of Warringah who when uh, when they saw what we'd achieved in Indi thought, you know what, we'd like a bit of that too. And uh, and when I was elected in 2019, I, my... Uh, my benchmate was Zali Stegel, so we saw that Sydney community picking up on the methodologies that we'd adopted, that really community-led action. And, of course, as everyone knows who's listening to this podcast, uh, we saw that Snowball can just to now the biggest crossbench in, uh, in our federal history. And uh, we, we're delighted, really, to see other communities really finding their voice as we have. Helen, Australians are now beginning to seriously consider how we reconcile our history of, of white colonisation and ongoing discrimination against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and also to, to recognise the deep knowledge of First Nations Australians. And through the Uluru Statement, Indigenous Australians have offered us a pathway forward. The proposal for constitutional change and the voice to federal parliament reflects some really important shifts that are going on. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the Uluru Statement itself and also the approach that the federal government's taking, the, the pathway that we're on towards the referendum and the voice. When uh, we were first handed uh, the Uluru Statement, I was deeply moved by the poetry by the humility, by the aspiration and inspiration of that invitation to the nation. Uh, I was incredibly taken uh, by the way that our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples came to us with such a generous, generous ask and a generous document, and it's a document that I think... Um, will be looked upon um, by generations forevermore, actually. I, I think it is one of the, the most beautiful and powerful um, pieces of work uh, in the globe. And, and um, you know, I, I've said to people, and I, and I don't mean to be uh, in any way grandstanding on this, but, um, you know, we, ha we have things like the Magna Carta, well, you know, we, we have the Uluru Statement. It, it's I think it's a very special thing. Um, and for me, that is the bedrock to what we're trying to achieve now with our conversations across the nation uh, coming into a referendum on constitutional recognition and voice to parliament. And I, I think we mustn't forget uh, in any way the Uluru Statement and if anyone has ever had the opportunity to be in a room where Thomas Mayo stands and recites the Uluru Statement, uh, if, uh, if you don't get uh, tingles down your spine when you hear Thomas recite that, I I'll go he. It's, it's so powerful. So I, I, I think that to me is, this, is the 
the the document that helps inform my thinking. Um, but it's not just that, of course. It's uh, it's uh, the long journey we've come on um, since colonialisation in Australia. And I think again, uh, this is this is an opportunity of 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 hope and uh, and a step forward in a way that unites us. That look, there's so much. Uh, uh, so much discussion at present about about the potential for this to divide us, and um, I, I'm uh, I'm really sorry to hear people having that conversation, and I and I think that's one to listen to and to gently um, put the the counter perspective on this. That it's a real opportunity to work together. I, I have. Um, I've been having, I think I'm only in the hundreds, but I, I will be in the thousands before the end of the year when we go to the referendum, having one-on-one conversations with people that I meet in my community. And no matter where I am or what I'm doing, and I've been doing this since probably around Christmas time uh, or a bit before, uh, whenever I stand uh, to publicly do something, which I do a lot, um, and I, and I um, make an acknowledgement of country, my acknowledgement of country uh, includes uh, some some words around uh, the forthcoming referendum and around uh, what we're trying to do as a nation. And when I'm just encountering people on the street who stop me all the time uh, to just have a yarn about whatever's on their mind, I, I always put to them, what do you reckon about the referendum? That's always my opening line. And then we have a conversation about that and, and what, uh, what this voice to parliament constitutional recognition is about, what it can do, uh, what it means, and uh, how we can all be a part of this in a really positive way. Helena, I think you've sort of begun to really flesh out the question that I wanted to ask you next, which was around the learning from Indi and the politics of Indi locally, the way in which politics is done, the kitchen table process, this notion that listening and talking are really important and that that, that shared experience and, uh, and deep listening might be a, a change in politics locally. Um, I'm just wondering what we can learn from that process of how we do politics in the federal seat of Indi and with the independent movement to inform a discussion around the referendum. There's a a sense that the federal government are asking us to take responsibility as voters, as citizens, particularly those of us who've been part, I guess, of the community conversations over the last few years. Can we learn from the politics of Indi how to do this in a way that will bring us together? Yeah, look, I think um, it's important to say that uh, Indi is not the not the uh, not the origin of kitchen table conversations, and that indeed human beings, as as I'm sure you all know and your listeners would know, um, human beings have been in in yarning circles and women's circles and uh, kitchen table style conversations uh, forever when uh, when we're talking about things that matter and 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 finding ways to bring about change. So without uh, any question, the kitchen table conversation methodology in, in uh, Indi came from, uh, in our instance, from the Victorian Women's Trust and the, and the Purple Sage movement. Um, so that, that was, we absolutely adopted adopted um, that work under the leadership of Mary Crooks. Uh, uh, so yes, that's a, that's an ancient methodology that works if we're, if we're wanting to bring people along on a, at times a contentious and difficult conversation. And I think that um, that idea of deep listening, like most of us think we're good listeners, but um, you 
know, we can all be inclined to jump in pretty fast uh, with an opinion and, and, and move very quickly to persuasion. Um, when it's it's uh, it takes some humility and some patience to just listen and and, um, and explore where people are coming from and 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 so often uh, when we're trying to bring about change there's fear about loss and uh, understanding what what people are fearful of losing is a really important place to go um, again in a respectful and generous way um, to hear that out and I think um, so there's that, and that takes a bit of time. You don't just you just can't do that in a in a quick street side conversation. Um, but you can in a in a quick conversation um, if uh, you can dispel some myths and and some mis misinformation. And and I find myself doing doing that um, quite often. So yes, I think that uh, this idea of us all who really care about this issue and I actually think most Australians I would say nearly all Australians deeply care about our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander brothers and sisters friends and neighbours workmates um, and people we don't know uh, who who are First Nations people I think we do care and I think uh, we can uh, if we're if we are generous in this just as our First Nations Australians have been generous in, in making this invitation. We, we can move through this. So I really encourage people to, to I guess, even be um, brave enough. And some people tell me, oh, I don't know enough about it, you know, therefore I can't have the conversation. You know, we learn together, don't we? So, um, you know, what we don't know we can then seek to find out. But you know, what, one of the things I think is interesting is um, many people are very concerned about, tampering with the constitution i hear this all the time and and when i explore that with them what they know about the constitution and and, and why they think it's it's you know why they're fearful of tampering with the constitution you know we both discover that that uh that the constitution is is a framework not a not a recipe book and and you know even just using that kind of language and and also uh, gently working with people and, and helping them understand what the what the role of a, a, an elected member of parliament is. You know, we're legislators, and um, and our job is to then take that framework of the constitution and and work with it to create the the laws that we need to enable us to thrive as a nation. And and you know, even putting politics into that framework is a surprise to people when you talk to them about that. I think so much of what everyday people know about politics is is more around policy debate uh, and and really the top three lines of the opening paragraph of a newspaper paper article and it's about conflict um, because, again, uh, the media naturally um, focuses on conflict. So when we start to talk about collaboration and about uh, the role of the parliament uh, to bring about change that is uh, in response to a modern world um, or to bring about change in a proactive way, uh, that's a surprise to many people. So, you know, again, that's a really good thing that a Member of Parliament can do in, in um, talking to constituents about what our job is in representing them. Helen, that's such a wonderful range of things for us all to be thinking about on how we can bring this conversation uh, toward an inclusive uh, and collaborative discussion locally. We will take a short break there and we'll be back in just a moment continuing this conversation with Dr. Helen Haynes. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back, listeners. We're here today with Dr Helen Haynes, Independent Federal MP for the Victorian seat of Indi. Before the break, we were discussing the incredible significance of the voice referendum and of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Um, And we were also talking about what we can learn from the experience in Indi and other parts of Australia where there are attempts to do politics differently. And I'd like to continue the conversation about the broad landscape of Australian politics and the shifts that we've seen since last year's election. Helen, we now have a more diverse parliament than we've had before, and there's also a substantial crossbench. Are those developments changing the way that Parliament is operating or changing the nature of debates, the way debate happens, and perhaps impacting on the nature of collaboration within Parliament? Love to hear how that's all playing out in practice. Well, I'm going to start by saying yes. Uh, Having a more diverse Parliament straight away means that we're hearing different voices in debate and uh, it's really gratifying. Uh, It's fabulous to hear those different voices. It's also um, deeply lovely to sit right there in the crossbench, which um, people, when they look into the parliament and see how we're all lined up in our seats and uh, this kind of a great big pie chart, and um, the crossbench literally sits right in the middle. So that's symbolic, I think, in, in lots of ways of, of, uh, of collaboration. And uh, I've, by, by nature, I am a collaborator and um, many of us, of course, can point to the hands that shape us. And coming from a health background, uh, I've always worked in a team and, and I understand that at various times in uh, the journey of a, of a person um, entering the health system that there's different different leaders of the team at different points in their journey and that in order to get the best kind of outcomes for an individual uh, that we need to listen to each other on the team and, and step in and step out of leadership positions in order to, to um, work with that person um, throughout their, their health journey. So uh, there's that. So that's kind of a way I'm used to working. There's also, I would say, in my life, um, when I undertook my scientific training, um, I'm shaped by the hands of Swedish scientists. And uh, there's a very strong uh, collaborative philosophy in the Nordic countries. So I, I know that that has influenced how I work with people. 
I think that uh, having a bigger crossbench, I now see so much more collaboration. Many people um, uh, look at the crossbench and think, ah, the crossbench are kind of a team in and of itself now. And uh, I'm very um, strong in in saying um, what we've seen with the independent movement is not a franchise. We are all independents and uh, we have, have... different views on many policy um, policy discussions based on the people we represent. So that's, there's that, and I have to say that so clearly. And there are some areas that we have, though, um, a lot of unity on, and, and I would say that um, something like uh, voice to parliament is one of them, uh, the importance of uh, transparency, accountability, integrity in public life and uh, decision-making is another one. Um, evidence-based, strong uh, action on climate change is another one. But our approaches to achieving those um, uh, to achieving policy outcomes on those can be different. If we, if we were to take climate change, I, mean, I think that's a great example of how this parliament has worked differently um, as a result of greater diversity uh, within the party representation, but also uh, this very big crossbench. Uh, so two significant pieces of legislation, um, the one being the Climate Act and the second one uh, being the Safeguard Mechanism Bill. It was just, I think, glorious to watch uh, the crossbench and how they worked with government on this. And, and I, I always say this to people, my job as an independent is not to be in opposition. My job as an independent is to work with the government of the day, whoever they are, uh, to try to um, work with their policy to uh, make it more responsive to to the people I'm representing, uh, to uh, push them to be more ambitious for the for the nation, uh, and uh, to criticise them if I think they've got it wrong, um, and to congratulate them when I think they've got it right. So it, it is, I think, uh, that's how I see my role, and, and irrespective of whether it was the previous government or whether it's this government. But what's different this time is the capacity to engage with government and to amend legislation. And for for any of the the real kind of um, policy and parliamentary wonks out there who who like to watch parliament, uh, uh, many people tend to just watch question time, but if, if you can have the forbearance to hang in and uh, and watch the consideration in detail part of a debate on a piece of legislation, that's when you see the crossbench in action. Now, when it came to the National Anti-Corruption Commission bill, uh, the consideration in detail part of that debate, uh, it went for almost four hours and it was almost, well, it was entirely the crossbench and the Attorney-General uh, debating amendments to that bill. Uh, and there was enormous goodwill, um, there was disagreement, um, but what we saw was the crossbench and the government um, or the crossbench pushing the government to do better, uh, the government respectfully uh, engaging with the crossbench and, and in, in my case, being the deputy chair of the uh, National Anti-Corruption Commission legislation inquiry was, again, a, a very direct um, uh, a very direct indicator of the government being very willing to work with the crossbencher. And likewise, I'm now Deputy Chair of the Oversight Committee. When it came to the Climate 
climate bill, um, I was able to amend that bill to insert some key clauses about rural and regional Australia. My my crossbench colleagues were able to amend that bill with their amendments. Um, Likewise, when it came to the safeguard mechanism, uh, my crossbench colleagues were not successful in making amendments in the House, but uh, they really did uh, work very, very powerfully, I think, um, in working with government and the and the broader community in pushing the debate along, which gave then uh, an opportunity for our Senate colleagues um, to take up that. And we saw some really great amendments made um, via the Senate. So, yes, is the answer. A very long explanation, but... Yes, uh, having more women, having more people from diverse cultural backgrounds, uh, having a bigger crossbench, and even us working with each other is a whole different world for me too. We had a very small crossbench before. That was simpler. This is more complicated. Um, but uh, with complexity uh, comes uh, real opportunities to see different perspectives and ultimately get some change. Helen, you've touched on the two major issues we really wanted to talk to you about, which was the climate change, the, I guess the two achievements in climate change legislation, emission reductions and the Climate Change Act, as well as the formation of a National Anti-Corruption Commission, which of course will open its door on the 1st of July. Um, you've given us some wonderful insight, I think, into how bringing in diverse voices and having a good independent crossbench with, with different perspectives has really um, enriched, I think, the policy debate and and perhaps even translated to better legislation. I'm sure it has. In, in what way can we continue to improve? So as we're thinking about how this government um, matures, how this parliament is maturing over the years that are coming, in what way would you like to see things continue to grow and improve? Yeah, I think that, uh, look, we've got some huge uh, challenges in front of us uh, as a nation. Um, What we're seeing, of of course, uh, on the the streets, in the homes, uh, in the thousands of conversations that each of us as members of parliament have with our constituents is uh, is a real uh, sense uh, that that we are we're facing some tough headwinds when it comes to um, everyday people managing their their home budget. So people who have a job, people who have a home, um, people who are in in what would normally be seen as 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 a pretty comfortable situation. So these are these are people now who are, are facing um, substantial increases in their mortgage repayments. Uh, looking down the the barrel of a thirty percent increase in uh, their energy costs. Uh, so those people who would, as I said, would generally be seen as being pretty well off. Um, uh, are really having to have a, a, a long hard look at how they're going to manage. Um, over the course of this year and the next in in making their home budget work. In having those conversations, though, I think is uh, a, a very, to me, a very great opportunity to really push government on issues or on policies such as home electrification. If, uh, if the home energy budget is being stretched by an additional 30%, we need to get people into a situation where every appliance in their home, where they're heating and cooling, where they're cooking, where their hot water comes from a renewable energy source that is cheaper and more reliable uh, than the current um, fossil-fueled electricity generation that we have. Now, we know that we are making that transition, but to 
to make that transition at a domestic level through the lens of lowering um, prices for for people in their homes, I think is a, is a great opportunity right now. Uh, so I really want to see the government uh, in this budget do something about nudging um, domestic electrification. I really want to see that. Now, I don't want to just see it for those Australians who are in their own home um, with a job. I want to see this for people who are renting. I want to see this for people who are on a really low income and who have been priced out of the renewable energy transition and the, uh, the, the, the cheaper energy they can get throughout that. So I want to see policy around that. And I think this crisis in, um, in the financial situation of the nation is, is a real opportunity rather than a negative. So I want to see that. Very much so. Uh, as we transition to renewable energy as a rural and regional Australian, I have been a, a, a loud and persistent voice on ensuring that regional communities where uh, all of this transition is happening, where the large-scale solar and wind is taking place right now. I've only got to walk out my door of my office here in Wangaratta and go down the road towards Glen Rowan and uh, we'll see solar panels now pretty much from... Um, my hometown of Wangaratta right through to the next town, bigger town of Banala. So those of you listening who don't know that geography, have a look at that on the map. Uh, so that's happening right in front of our very eyes. And uh, I want to be sure that uh, the profits that come from the transition to renewables are shared by the people who look out upon those fields of, of uh, solar panels or wind turbines every day. I want to see policy that ensures that there are long-term jobs for our young people, uh, whether they be at the highly technical end of, of uh, engineering and science or whether they uh, be in the trades that uh, put these, uh, these solar and wind farms together, whether they be in the maintenance, whether they be in the road construction. And I want to see profits, not going offshore from the, from the generation of energy in our in our fields, uh, I want to see those profits shared. I want to see genuine regional development as a result of our transition to renewables. I want railway lines with fast and frequent trains. I want to see our, our healthcare infrastructure at world-class level. I want to see the people in rural and regional Australia experiencing the equivalent of a gold rush um, as, as we transition to renewables. So that's very important to me and my constituents. Helen, that is a fabulous agenda and a fabulous vision that, that you outline. I'm sitting here listening to you and thinking, yeah, I want what she wants. And I think lots of our listeners will be thinking exactly the same as, as you talk about what the future could hold and should hold. I wanted to, to take us back to a comment that you made um, at the very start when you introduced yourself and you, you pointed out the fundamental relationship between poverty and ill health. Um, and we have um, unacceptably high levels of, of poverty in Australia for a very wealthy country, and we've known for a very long time that a major contributor to poverty in Australia is the very low level of working age benefits, not the only contributor, but perhaps the major one. And we're currently experiencing a cost of living crisis and a, and a really shocking housing crisis. The government's Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee has recently recommended both the both working age benefits and Commonwealth rent assistance be increased. 
the Treasurer has flagged that we're unlikely to see those increases in the upcoming budget. Um, and we know we're in a very, very tight fiscal environment. But I'd, I'd really like to hear your thoughts on how we should approach poverty and growing inequality in Australia. And I think this is this is a problem in, in the regions, but it's a problem across the country. What are your thoughts on how we rethink our approach to those really critical issues? So uh, I've been um, clear since I ran for Parliament in 2019 that my approach to policy would always be based on real evidence, uh, evidence that comes from a variety of means, not just a, a straight-up quantitative statistical analysis of a situation, but a more triangulated approach whereby we would bring in social scientists as well as our um, benchtop scientists or uh, depending what the issue might be, uh, that we would ground truth that with uh, talking to people with lived experience uh, and that we would bring all those perspectives uh, in the least biased way we possibly can and, and of course, we, we eliminate bias as best we can by having multiple sources of evidence. Um, I was really encouraged by um, Senator David Pocock um, calling for the economic inclusion um, report to be undertaken and, indeed, part of my um, decision to support the government's uh, IR bills as they stood were premised upon uh, the work that was going to happen across in the Senate and the promises that were made around doing um, better evidence gathering to inform policy on issues such as economic inclusion. So I welcome this report. I think that uh, the evidence that's been shown through this and uh, coupled with uh, a, a graphical representation of, of the poverty line and uh, over a period of time and the uh, the decline in uh, our, our support to people uh, who are seeking work or who are on youth allowance or people who need rent assistance, uh, it, it's graphically so obvious that we've fallen off a cliff in terms of support for people to actually um, put food on the table and, and to, well, to, to survive, actually. I think that the government can't walk away from the evidence now on this um, because the evidence backs in lived experience and, and uh, I've been down to the local park uh, early in the morning when um, our people in our community who are homeless come come for a shower and there's some uh, community groups who provide breakfast down there and I, I've sat and listened uh, to people's stories. One man telling me the story that he, he's a chef and uh, we all know there's thousands probably of jobs available for chefs across Australia. There's certainly dozens and dozens of jobs available here in Wangaratta and, and a, uh, looking from the outside someone might say, why doesn't he just get a job as a chef? There's, but he lives in a tent. Um, he has a complex story that has led to him living in a tent um, and one of our uh, along one of our rivers. All his chef's tools were stolen because he has no security with his tent. That's left him unable to have any tools of trade. Uh, he cannot afford to put petrol in a car. He's got a car, uh, but he can't put any petrol in it. Um, he can't go to a job interview. Uh, he actually managed to get to a couple of job interviews and got a job, but he couldn't reliably get to work um, because of a whole lot of complicated circumstances, including the theft of his tools and uh, and waiting for his salary to put petrol in the car. You know, there are complex stories that surround people. Um, 
to me, it's abundantly clear. It's just abundantly clear that we need to uh, we need to raise the rate of job seeker payments. Likewise, with our uh, our young people on youth allowance, uh, we have to do that because if we don't do that, uh, we are marginalising people. Uh, to a degree where they may not be able to come back. And, and, and it's not just about them if we want to take a particularly selfish view. It's actually about the broader economy. It's about, uh, it's about the, the huge need we have for people to work um, in, in all of these vacant positions. So if, if we're actually eliminating uh, people because they uh, structurally can't even get into the workforce and that's just foolish policy in my mind. I think the other thing to say about this uh, and and again I you know I, I listen to employers and I, I really get their frustration and and when you look at things um, straight up as uh, there's tons of jobs available why is anybody uh, unemployed again it's about I think sharing the stories and 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 I share the stories of the people I've met to say you know, I know a woman who who I often give a lift to because uh, she lives in a caravan out of town. Um, she's actually camping illegally and um, it takes her an hour and a half to walk into town to, to go to uh, the job agency uh, to fulfil her obligations under JobSeeker. By the time she's got there and walked back, she's pretty tired. Um, and, and listening to her, she really wants to get a, a job, but she really needs flexibility um, in in that job because she has a disabled son. So it's not as simple as there's plenty of jobs people should take them. So you know, I think it is about listening and 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 having real, uh, I think, real empathy for employers who who can't open their business every day of the week when they want to because they're short of staff, and 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 getting that but also sharing the stories of, of people who've been long-term unemployed and just can't move out of that poverty cycle um, because of all the, the structural issues in their life as well. So, you know, I think we're capable of having those conversations as a society. I really am. It is, again, it's a bit like, as I said at the outset, it's about listening and and telling the stories and trying to find a pathway forward. Now, you know, the government have some choices to make here and uh, I'm I'm really clear about this. They have a choice to make. They are in government. They are in control of the purse strings. There are ways that government make decisions about what's in and what's out of the budget. And uh, if they don't do something to address this, I think they've got some serious explaining to do. Helen, I think we could talk about that issue alone with you for a lot longer, Um, but I know that we will need to bring our conversation to a close soon. And as we do that, I'd like to return to the voice and to the referendum that we face later this year. Our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has said of the voice referendum, we'll feel better about ourselves if we just get this done. We've been imagining on the pod about what might happen the day after the vote when we wake up the next morning. And I wonder what sort of things you're imagining for Australia on that morning after the referendum. What are your hopes for Australia on that day? When we wake up the day after the referendum, my hope is that all across this nation we look at ourselves in the mirror, we turn to the person across the breakfast table if we happen to have one there or if we're out walking the dog, we encounter uh, someone who we 
may or may not know. And we just give a little nod, a gentle nod, to say we are a nation that has looked at our past, who sees our future, uh, who is in the present and has acknowledged that we've done a good thing and we have enshrined in our constitution the extraordinary uh, the extraordinary fact that we have the longest continuous culture of people in the world, um, that we acknowledge everything they bring to the world and to us as a nation of Australians, uh, their deep, deep cultural knowledge. And we say, wow, aren't we lucky? And now let's make sure that these first Australians can move forward along with everyone in this nation and uh, have a voice to our parliament. It's there in the constitution and we've brought about that change that uh, just like uh, those initial constitutional writers way back when uh, set in in, uh, in, in concrete uh, the framework for how our nation would run, that we've now had a say in that too and we've enshrined our First Nations Australians in that. That's what I hope. Helen, it has been such a privilege to talk to you today. It has been absolutely inspirational to hear the way you are thinking about the the challenges and the opportunities that are facing our country. And I hope that we all do join together the day after the referendum and, and give one another that nod, know we've done a good thing and know we're moving forward on a on a positive path. Helen Haynes, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to have this conversation. Sharon, I could speak with Helen Haynes for hours, and in fact I often try to, but I'm always deeply inspired by the conversation that we have, her compassion and her capacity to listen and to understand the vast diversity of lives that people experience around the country. I think she has a deep vision for our future. I really, really appreciate the way that she listens And you hear it reflected in her policy approach that listening to the stories, particularly the stories we heard just recently on poverty, uh, that 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 storytelling focus can richly inform policy discussions in a way that data doesn't always give us. Uh, So it's an extraordinary technique for political change. And I find that inspirational when we're looking at the challenge of the voice, the way in which we might bring our community together to find common ground around reconciling our past and finding our future. I'm so grateful that Helen had an opportunity to join us today. What were your thoughts? That really was an inspirational conversation. And there is something deeply visionary in the way Helen thinks about the challenges before us and opens up an opportunity to do things both differently and far, far better. And I think that that is a remarkable thing to hear from a Member of Parliament. There were a couple of things that really struck me in that conversation, Anna Greta, that I, I just wanted to comment on. And when Helen was talking about um, the Uluru Statement and its beauty and its generosity, I was I was reminded of Dale Aegis's comment when we we had Dale on the pod recently, the South Australian Commissioner for for the Voice in that state, when he said in his consultations, Aboriginal people that he spoke with said, "We've been waiting for you. You know, we've been waiting for this to happen." 
And I think as non-Indigenous Australians, we can also flip that around and say, whether we have known it or not, we have been waiting for the opportunity that the Uluru Statement from the Heart presents to us, because it presents to us a very different way forward um, and the kind of country that I think we all deeply hope for but don't always know how to achieve and we now have that roadmap. I loved Helen's comment that here we have a document that is as significant as the Magna Carta. You know, this could change the way we see ourselves, the way we see the world. So what an opportunity we have before us. The other thing that struck me, Anna Greta, was the very powerful comments that um, that Helen made about poverty and inequality in Australia. And I think this is something that we cannot keep averting our eyes from. There are difficult decisions to be made. We know that we have a very, very difficult budgetary situation, but we cannot accept a world that is or a country that is characterised by such deep injustice. We cannot say that we are prepared to have eight-year-olds sleeping in cars. We cannot be prepared to say we accept children being hungry every single day and limiting their own opportunities. So we need a different vision. And um, I, I loved the things that Helen said about uh, her aspirations for change. Mm, absolutely. It's deeply inspirational. If we begin to talk about it, then we might be able to achieve it. Listeners, this podcast is produced by policyforum.net. We'll leave a link to the publications and sources that we've discussed in today's show notes. If you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, we would love a review. It's the best way for other people to find out about our podcast. We love hearing from our audience, so please reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, Apps Policy Forum, or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. And with that, that's all we have time for this week. From me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.